Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for weakness, and I pray that uh, the weakness of my voice today would magnify the strength of your word and your spirit, and uh, may we all just revel in the glory of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 24, if you have a copy of God's word, you can open there and uh, join me in today's text, Acts 24, where the Apostle Paul stands before Felix. Uh, acting as judge. You remember last week, um, the commander, Claudius Lysias, had gone to all that great extent. Remember how many troops? 470 troops uh, in order to safely escort Paul from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, uh, where Paul could stand trial before uh, Felix. And, uh, and so we learn in verse 1 that uh, a group, a portion of these Jews, the, the high priest Ananias and some of the other elders, some of the members of the Sanhedrin probably, made the trek up there in order to uh, bring their accusations against the Apostle Paul. And we look at a scene like this and we, we sort of wonder what God is doing here. Uh, you know, what are, what are the priorities in a case like this? We sort of think, well, the priority is, you know, we got to protect Paul's life. We got to get him out of prison. Uh, you know, Jesus has said that he, he's going to represent Christ in Rome. You remember that encouraging word from Jesus? He showed up to him there in, in prison and said, hey, you're going to represent me in Rome. And so, hey, we got to get, get Paul out of prison. We got to get him to Rome. Uh, th- these are the priorities. But the Apostle Paul ha- has sort of a different perspective on things. His goal is just to keep a clean conscience before the Lord, to keep honoring the Savior who saved him. And we're going to notice as we work through this the, the distinctions. You know, sometimes we get so attached to our, our desires, our goals, the, the things that we think would be good, that we lose sight of what's really important. And uh, the Apostle Paul helps us through this text. Remember what's really at stake here in representing Jesus before Felix. So our proposition or our our theme today is this. We need to aim to please Jesus in the details so that we're ready to share Jesus with those who ask. What really prepares us to represent Jesus well, what really helps us to be ready to accomplish big things for Christ actually comes down to the little things, the small things. You know, is the goal here really to get Paul out of prison? Is it really his freedom? Is it even to win the trial? Well, not necessarily. The goal is to represent Jesus, and that is done by seeking to please him in the little things. Well, notice how this makes a difference as we work through the text today. The first nine verses, we we focus mainly on the Jews and the way they represent their side of the case to Felix. We're told in verse one that they've hired an orator. This is like hiring an attorney, a lawyer, something like that. It was common in that day, especially if you're really passionate about your case and want to be sure you won. So they've hired this man named Tertullus. If you have a pet turtle, that could be a good option for uh, the name Tertullus. At any rate, uh, this was a common name in that time, kind of a Latin flair to it, and this was the man that they had hired, uh, and believe me, unless he was just a passionate Jew about all of this, they had to pay quite a bit to hire this man uh, to do this for them. And you notice his defense, right? Uh, we read it already, but, but look at verse 2. He, he's called upon, and he begins his accusation And I'm going to read it again, but this time I want you to notice the flattery, the exaggeration, the number of superlatives. You know what superlatives are. It's all and every and so on and so forth. Just notice again as I read his statement. Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace. 
and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So, this is just over-the-top flattery from Tertullus here towards Felix, making statements that he has no right to make. He claims that Felix has brought peace and prosperity to the land by his foresight. Well, Felix had done no such thing. And if you asked an honest Jew whether they appreciated the Roman governance of the region, they would say, no, absolutely not. And yet, Tertullus here seems to claim that they were very thankful, always and at all times, for Felix's rule. Another lie meant to flatter the governor. So Felix here is, is using flattery in order to try to make his case, to get what he wants. It's over the top. He's deceiving. He's flattering. But then we come to his charges in verses 5 through 6, and here again we see, uh, we see that Tertullus is cutting some corners here. First, he calls Paul a plague. This is not only an insult, but it was intended to imply that Paul had been doing things that made the culture unhealthy. He, he was making Rome sick, so to speak. And this was a significant charge to a Roman governor because they wanted to maintain the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so if someone was a plague, it was a serious charge. So he calls him a plague, both an insult and a charge that he's ruining the health of the culture. As we continue on, uh, Tertullus claims that he's also a creator of dissension, both among the Jews and throughout the world. Here we have both an exaggeration and a lie. Now, on the one hand, you could uh, make the claim that Paul's preaching the gospel was creating some unrest among the Jews. And that as Paul had traveled around and people were coming to Christ, there were Jews that opposed him. But it's still an overstatement to say that Paul was creating this dissension. He wasn't riling up the crowds. He was just preaching his perspective. And there were those who chose to be angry and opposed to him in these ways. So he was not creating the dissension. Furthermore, this was not everywhere in the world. Again, this is a charge Tertullus is bringing to, to try to bring weight to it before Felix so that Felix will be alarmed. Oh, Paul's trying to bring down the Roman peace everywhere that Rome is, and it's simply not the truth. So Tertullus uses these overstatements, exaggerations, and deceptions in order to make their case. He calls Paul, in verse 5, a, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That phrase, sect of the Nazarenes, was his way of referring to Christianity. Uh, Jesus was known as of Nazareth, and so that's one way that they referred to it. This, the idea of a sect is sort of an insult, and calling him a ringleader meant that it, 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 he was trying to maybe supplant or to ruin Judaism in this sect. Finally, they make the claim that he tried to profane the temple. And this goes back to the, the Jews from Asia that claimed he had brought a, a Gentile into the temple further than he should have, which, of course, never happened. They had made up that charge. And so in verses 5 and 6, uh, these are um, the things he lists. But you notice how he describes the way it went down. Verse 6, we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Well, let's remember what actually happened. Tertullus describes this like it's fairly calm, right? Like Paul is creating the ruckus, and so they grabbed him in order to calm things down and judge him by the law. But do you remember how it actually happened? Paul wasn't saying anything. The Jews simply saw him worshiping in the temple, and they created the violent riot. They were the ones who created the turmoil and so forth. 
Notice how he describes what Lysias did in verse 7. The commander, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands. Again, this is the opposite of what happened. The commander came and stopped the riot, bringing Paul to safety. But now Tertullus claims that he was the one. What's interesting is that if Felix had read the letter from the commander, do you remember studying that last week? If Felix had read it carefully, he would know that now we have two opposing accounts because the commander had said the Jews were creating the violence and I came and rescued Paul. And now the Jews are saying Paul created the violence, uh, the commander created the violence, we were just trying to calmly judge him by the law. I think maybe at the end that's why uh, Felix wants to hear from the commander. So there's lying, exaggeration, flattery, deception. Tertullus is cutting all sorts of corners in order to get what they want. They just want Paul to be convicted and even put to death. After Tertullus finishes in verse 8, verse 9, the other Jews kind of nod or give some sign of assent. Yep, that's all accurate, which actually it wasn't. But they just say, yeah, thumbs up, we agree what he said. He's our guy. We agree with him. So they lie. They deceive. They cut corners in order to try to get what they want. And so we learn from this first scene actually a negative example. We must resist the temptation to cut corners in the details. Sometimes, even as Christians, we can get so set on a good thing that we think we want and we think is best that We get there by cutting corners. We take shortcuts. We don't please Jesus in the details. Now, in their view, it was a good thing. They they were seeking to please God by putting Paul down. Remember, Paul even acknowledges that. Remember his speech at the top of the stairs just after they'd beaten him? And he speaks to them and says, I know you're zealous for God. I was once zealous for God like you. See, they're, they're actually trying to please God here by putting Paul down. But they have complete disregard for the details. They're cutting corners left and right, lying, deceiving, exaggerating, flattering in order to get what they want. And it's a reminder to us that we represent Jesus well, not by cutting corners. We represent Jesus well by pleasing him in the details. And so we must resist the temptation to cut corners. I like to run short distances, okay, three miles at the most. Uh, Some of you run further than that. I know some in the room have even trained for for marathons, half marathons, and so forth, and long distance running. Well, if you've ever been in a race, even maybe a shorter cross-country race, or maybe even a long marathon, you know that there aren't always people observing you at every turn of the race. And there can be the temptation as a runner to literally cut corners as you're running the race to shorten the distance, to shorten your time. Now, modern marathons have used technology to cut down on this and putting little uh, digital time trackers in in shoes and on the runner's um, tags and so forth, so they can track different checkpoints along the way and all of that. But there are still those who even try to cut corners. Uh, I came across an article that described some uh, marathon runners who cut corners. It described uh, the following scenarios. Back in January, almost a third of the top 100 finishers of the Xiamen Marathon in China were disqualified for, among other things, traveling sections of the race by car and hiring imposters to race in their place. Famously, Rosie Ruiz was the first woman across the line in the 1980 Boston Marathon and gave a triumphant interview on national television despite having caught a subway train to the finish line and run only the last mile. She was later found out, and uh, her, her award was retracted. In 1999, Sergio Mostaneng finished ninth in South Africa's 90-kilometer Comrades Marathon after running in tandem with his doppelganger younger brother, 
They swapped places during toilet stops and were caught after post-race photos showed the pair wearing different watches. Runners throughout history have sought to cut corners to uh, shorten their time. But when we live the Christian life, when we live to please the one who sees all things, there's no cutting corners. We need to do our best to represent Jesus well in all the details of life. Now, at first, that seems like a heavy weight on our shoulders. How am I supposed to do that? But God has given us his spirit to help us with that very thing. And in every scenario, in every context, at every turn, and in every decision, God gives us everything we need in that moment to say yes to him. And so rather than looking at all the possible decisions of life and saying, oh, how am I supposed to do it all for the Lord? We just look at the next decision and say, okay, what does the Lord have for me here? Will I trust his promises and power and strength and help to just say yes to him and not to, to cut corners to try to get what I think is a good thing? Sometimes we just focus in on doing the big things, going to church, doing the right thing when it counts, sharing the gospel when given the opportunity, and so we allow ourselves a little leeway in the smaller things. Well, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't do this. But if we're living for Jesus in the details, why would the Lord, excuse me, if we're not living for Jesus in the details, why would the Lord give us those big opportunities anyway? And when those big opportunities come, who's to say we would really leverage them for the Lord's glory anyway? Luke recorded the, the words of Jesus in the parable of the unjust steward in Luke chapter 16. Jesus says this, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. It's a reminder that we need to be faithful in the details. When we cut corners, we show that we aren't really serving the God who saved us. We aren't loving him in the details, and so we must resist the temptation to cut corners. And we see three kinds of little corner cuts here with Tertullus, and so I'll mention the three of those in application for ourselves. The first is flattery. The Jews use flattery here, and it's sort of a manipulative tactic to get Felix on their side. But the Apostle Paul, in his own writing, writes against the use of flattery in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. He was careful not to use flattery in order to distort the gospel. Flattery is evidence that we worship men, not God. We're willing to go over the top in the way we describe things and giving compliments just because we want someone to like us or to take our perspective. Now, there's a place to give honor where honor is due, but our words should be true and honest, not over the top. Exaggeration was another tactic that Tertullus used, and, and again, we can often be tempted to stretch the truth, to make the fish a little bigger than it actually was, right? I wonder when we retell our stories, do we inflate the details a little bit so we look better? If God were telling the story, would he tell it the same way? Deception. Tertullus used deception, even lied, in order to make their case stronger, and we face the same temptation. It's especially tempting to hide and minimize our sin in the name of the gospel. We tell ourselves, if they find out the truth, it will be a bad testimony to the reputation of Christ and to the gospel. But that's a lie. We actually give the world a clearer picture of Jesus and what he is like when we're honest about our sin. When we are willing to say to people, here's what I did. It's been weighing on my conscience and I, I need to tell you this. I need to come clean. It's not what Jesus is like. It's not how he wants me to live. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Don't believe the lie that little white lies or deception are okay as long as they're for a good cause. No, we, we show the world what Jesus is like by coming clean with our sin, especially in those cases when nobody would know or we think nobody would know because it's clear who we're really concerned about pleasing. 
resist the temptation to cut corners in the details because the gospel calls us to live for Jesus in the details. When we aim to please him in the small things in life, we prepare ourselves to represent him well and to share him with those who ask. This brings us to the next scene. In verses 10 through 21, the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to defend himself. He gives a speech to Felix that is a little bit different than Tertullus's version of the speech. And Paul doesn't use flattery. He doesn't use exaggeration. His, his opening statement is respectful and honors Felix, but it's also very honest. He says to Felix that, I, I know you've been a judge for many years of this nation, and so I cheerfully answer for myself. Just simple, short, and to the point. He explains in verse 11 that he'd only been in Jerusalem for 10 days, which is not long enough to create this kind of dissension that they're accusing him of. In verse 12, he points out that they don't have any evidence that he was causing this disputing or inciting the crowds. Whatever disturbances happened were not of his doing, and he's right. He explains in verse 13 that they have no proof whatsoever, no eyewitness accounts, no anything to... uh, to verify what they're claiming. So in verse 14, Paul does make a confession. He says, here's what I do confess to you today. I do believe in the way, as he describes it. And there's a fun play on words there in verse 14. Paul says, this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Our minds could go maybe to John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so Paul's almost saying here directly, I come to the Father by the way, Jesus. It's according to the way that I worship God. Now, he calls God the God of his fathers, and so he's making the point that what he's doing is not in opposition to Judaism. He goes on to describe that he he still believes in the law and the prophets, and so he's not trying to create a problem here. He's not trying to tear down Judaism. Verse 15, he explains that he hopes in God just like they do. He also describes how he believes in a resurrection of the just and the unjust, which was uh, considered orthodox teaching in Judaism, though the Sadducees did reject that teaching. And you remember, that's how Paul created that debate in the Sanhedrin when he brought up the resurrection. But this was considered orthodox teaching in Judaism, that there would be a resurrection and a judgment for the just and the unjust. Finally, verse 16, Paul states that because he believes in the resurrection, he seeks to live with a clear conscience before God and men. This has already become clear. This is something that doesn't matter to the Jews, but because Paul believes he will stand before Jesus one day, he seeks to please him in the details. And it's this desire there in verse 16 for this clean conscience before God and men that really compels his testimony and his actions before Felix here. In verses 17 and following, he describes his visit to Jerusalem that it had been many years since he'd come, so he wouldn't have had time to build up this kind of a following. He had come to bring an offering, and so here's a reference to, I think, that gift that he brought to the Jerusalem church. His fellow Jews, it would have benefited Jerusalem greatly that his fellow Jews received this monetary gift. I mean, even on a purely economical level, it was a good thing for Jerusalem to have received this kind of a gift from the other churches. And as those believers there in Jerusalem prosper, it was a good thing. So he says, I brought an offering to the nation as I came. Verse 18, these Jews from Asia found me worshiping, having just been purified in the temple and they made these accusations. Now, in verses 19 and 20, he makes a, a point here that I think really should shut the whole thing down. He says, the claim that these Jews, Ananias the high priest and the other elders are bringing against me, had to do with actually a charge the Jews from Ephesus brought. They saw me worshiping in the temple, they seized me, they began beating me, but he points out in verses 19 and 20 that they're not here. The Jews that are here testifying against me, they only saw me in the council of the Sanhedrin. So 
if somebody who actually witnessed these things wants to come and present a case, let them come and present a case. But these who are here didn't observe anything. The only thing he points out in verse 21 that they observed was the one statement where he cried out, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. And that's when the Sanhedrin, you know, began debating. And I don't think Paul's saying he did anything wrong there, but he's saying, look, if they, if they want to bring a charge against me, that's basically all they saw. So the charges they're bringing, they weren't even witnesses of. And so at this point, I think Paul has made a strong enough case that Felix could just throw the case out. But rather than do that, Felix, as we'll see, decides to keep him imprisoned and wants to wait to hear from the commander. So has Paul failed? Has his defense of himself just really not proved to work? He's still in prison. Shouldn't he have been released? I mean, should, maybe he should have used a little more exaggeration. Maybe some deception would have, would have caused this to work and he could have gotten out of prison. And Come on, Paul, you've got to fight fair here. They're using exaggeration, so use a little bit yourself. But no, back to verse 16. Paul is desiring to live in a clean conscience before God. And so he just sticks to the honest truth about what he believes and what he did. And this is our second point today. As we aim to please Jesus in the details so that we're ready to share Jesus with those who ask, one of the ways we do this is we, we just speak truthfully and honestly about our beliefs and our actions. We don't need to deceive or exaggerate or cut corners. We just tell it how it is. I came across another article that was a collection of bad excuses for missing work. Sometimes we like to, um, you know, give ourselves a little extra credit when, uh, when we fall short of things. So listen to a few of these, and I don't recommend using these in your own workplace. One uh, employer shared this. When our new hire didn't show up for work, I called her. She explained that her mother had passed away and that she'd need a few days off for bereavement. Of course, I said. A week went by, and she still hadn't returned to work. So I called again. This time she said she had good news and bad news. The good news, her mother had come back to life. The bad news, she was sick again, so she had to stay home with her. Don't try that one. <clears throat> Another employer shared this one. Once when my dad received an invitation to do something he obviously didn't want to do, he replied, I can't go, I have to change the furnace filter. Now, when anyone in my family doesn't want to do something, that's what we tell each other. Up, <laughs> oh, got to go change the furnace filter. Someone else called into work saying that they were going to be late. Well, why? Because they were at home sleeping, but dreamed they were at work, so they didn't realize they had to get up. <laughs> okay, okay. Someone else shared, I recently invited neighbors over for dinner. When they were about an hour late, I gave them a buzz to see what time we might expect them. My wife was puzzled. Oh, she said, I thought that was last night. <laughs> Wait a second, if you thought it was last night, wouldn't you have... Okay, never mind. All right, all right. We, uh, we like to make excuses. Uh, we like to justify our actions and ourselves, and sometimes we do fall prey to the desire to, oh, exaggerate or just tell a little white lie or deceive a little bit. But we see the example of the Apostle Paul here that when our lives are focused on just pleasing the one who saved us, our desire will be to live with a clean conscience before God who sees all and knows my heart and before men who I'm, I'm trying to represent Jesus in a positive way. And so Paul is honest about his beliefs and actions. He's not defensive. He's not exaggerating. He's not covering things up. He's just stating things how they are, even very open about his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we can speak truthfully about our beliefs and actions. Be honest about what you believe, and in doing so, make a beeline to Jesus. Well, Jesus saved me from my sins, so I try to live in a way that pleases him. I often fall short, and when I do, I try to make it right because that's what he would want me to do. Come clean when your actions don't match your beliefs. 
what I did was not pleasing to God. I was being selfish, living for me instead of living for him. That's not what Jesus is like. Would, would you please forgive me? As we live to please Jesus, it's, it's not about being perfect, but it's about letting the gospel infiltrate every corner of my life, every little detail, so that my aim is to please him, and that when I don't, I have that gospel confidence that isn't afraid of coming clean in my sin because in the gospel, I know what God's view of me is. I know he accepts me in Jesus. And so he'd be pleased for me to come clean and to make something right. I don't have to be afraid of what he will think. We in the gospel are freed and empowered and encouraged to speak truthfully about our beliefs and our actions so that we can please Jesus in the details. We come to the final section in verses 22 through 27, and here's where things take a turn that we wouldn't really expect. We sort of hope that Felix will throw the case out and let Paul go and everything will sort of have a happy ending. But Felix decides to keep Paul in prison until Lysias the commander comes down. And almost the way it's put in verse 22, we don't even know if, if Felix has sent a letter to call for the commander to come or if this is just kind of, well, we'll see if he ever shows up. Yikes. That can be a long time in prison. And indeed, it does turn out that way. So Paul is left in prison, and in verse 23, we see that he's given a centurion to keep guard, and Felix gives him a little bit of liberty so visitors can come and, and talk with him and provide food for him. And eventually, in verse 24, Felix and his wife decide they want to hear more from Paul. And I, and I love this. They want to hear concerning faith in Christ. They've seen something is different about Paul We've already been told that Felix knew a little bit about the way Christianity and Paul's, you know, kind of this uh, ringleader of that sect as the Jews claimed. And so here's Felix's opportunity to hear a little bit more. And we learn that Drusilla, his wife, is uh, a Jew herself. And so they begin having conversations with Paul. Now, if I was in Paul's shoes, I would have found that a little bit frustrating. Okay, well, yeah, I can talk to you about the gospel, but I'm not supposed to be here, right? I mean, was, I'm innocent. Just let me go. I'm supposed to get to Rome and represent Christ there. This is really helping anything. You know, you keep listening, but you're not making any decisions. But we don't see any of that attitude with Paul. He stands before them faithfully and shares about faith in Christ. In verse 25, we read that Paul reasons specifically in, in sharing his faith in Christ. He reasons specifically about three things, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And these are significant because Felix's response in verse 25 is to be afraid and to send Paul away for now. I'll call you again when I have a convenient time. So what was Paul teaching about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? Well, by looking at the Apostle Paul's writings, we can sort of draw some conclusions, make some guesses here at what Paul was talking about, and we, we know his focus on the gospel. So when he's talking about righteousness, I think Paul is explaining that there's, there's no way to find righteousness apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul was probably declaring to Felix that there's, righteousness does not come by good works, but we can have our sins washed away and be declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we call personal, or excuse me, positional sanctification when we're declared righteous by faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes that at length in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Righteousness that comes not by keeping the law, but righteousness by faith. And so Paul has the opportunity to tell Felix about true righteousness here in the courtroom where righteousness is not happening. Paul also talks about self-control, and this one should be no surprise to us because once we're declared righteous by faith, we then have God's Spirit so that we can do what is right. In fact, for the first time in the human life, a person is able to demonstrate true self-control after placing their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because then we have the Spirit's power to say no to self and yes to God. The Apostle Paul himself would write in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, one of them being self-control. This is our progressive sanctification, that though we've been made righteous in Christ, we must learn to walk in righteousness, saying yes to God and saying no to ourselves, self-control. But then finally, the Apostle Paul speaks about the judgment to come. Here, Paul probably explained that everyone will be resurrected to stand before God. The just will be raised to eternal life and will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. And the unjust will be raised to eternal punishment and will stand before God at the great white throne judgment. Either way, we'll give account for our works. And here, I I would guess that Paul really explained to Felix that he needed to be prepared for that judgment. I would guess that Paul probably leveraged the judgment to come as a reminder of the urgency of salvation in Christ. Oh, that Felix as well would trust in Christ as Savior. It's no wonder then that Felix was afraid after Paul's explanations of righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, because Felix knew he was not a man who was right with God, and so he sent Paul away. It's not the main point of the text, but it's really a sad side note that Felix continues to listen to Paul, but we never hear of a conversion in Felix's life. It it may be that later he came to know Christ as Savior. He certainly knew enough from Paul's teaching to do that. But at least as far as we know, he just delays Paul is faithful to share the gospel, and this continues on. And verses 26 and 27 tell us that Felix was even hoping in, in calling him to come so many times that Paul would, would give him some kind of, kind of bribe in order to let him out of prison. But after two years of this, imagine two years of being held captive, being innocent, How tempting at that point would it have been to resort to these corner-cutting ways to to give Felix a bribe. Do something. I got to get moving here. I can't just stay in prison with you, Felix. You listen to me, but you don't make any decisions. I got to get to Rome. But Paul just seeks to please Jesus. He keeps sharing the gospel with Felix. And Felix is pushed out of office We're not told how specifically Josephus writes about it in his history, but a man named Festus comes into office, and they want to do the Jews a favor, and so they leave Paul in prison. Ugh, what a loss. This is a defeat, right? I mean, we come to the end of this, and this is just like, lose. We didn't didn't get what we wanted. Paul's still in prison. But on the contrary, I think this is a win. Because Paul has faithfully sought to please Jesus in the details. And in this third scene, we see this. that We too need to be ready to explain the importance of faith in Jesus. Is that not what it's all about? You know, we think maybe it would have been better off for Paul to be somewhere else, to be out of prison, just cut some corners so you can get out of there and get to Rome and preach to more people. But this is right where God had him. Paul was being faithful to do what God had called him to do, to preach the gospel. And for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, God wanted Paul there for two years to preach to Felix, to Drusilla, to the other members of the court who might have heard and given testimony to that. We sadly don't know what kind of fruit God worked from that, but what does it really matter except that Paul was faithful? to do what God had called him to do for two years in prison, faithfully preaching the gospel. Many speculate that Luke, who was with Paul during this time, used those two years to actually write his gospel, and while he was in Caesarea, did some research in the area about Jesus' miracles and so forth, and put together the the book of Luke as well as uh, the first part of the book of Acts. So maybe that's something positive that came out of this time, but No, I think what's really positive that came out of this time is we see the example of the Apostle Paul being faithful to obey Jesus in the details. Sometimes in the Christian life, we we get on our little soapboxes 
you're familiar with that phrase, right? It goes back to, oh, these, these little wooden crates that were often used uh, for somebody to stand up on top of and, uh, and, and preach or speak about some issue that they were passionate about. And called soap boxes because it was a kind of box that soap was shipped in, right? It's a crate, basically. And so today, we use that phrase for something we're passionate about. You get up on your soapbox and you talk about that issue. And there can be so many things we're, we're passionate about, willing to speak boldly about. Important issues many times, racism, bullying, political scandal, trafficking, civil rights, freedom of speech, and so on and so forth. Important issues. Sometimes soapbox issues consume people. And all of a sudden, everything in life is sort of viewed through that soapbox issue. Let's take one like government corruption. Maybe you've had a friend who was convinced of deep-seated government corruption, and so everything was kind of a conspiracy. And Well, my car broke down this week. Ah, I'm telling you, it's the government. They put chips in the cars, and... Well, it's going to rain tomorrow. Ah, it's the government. They control the weather, and they're just trying to get you depressed. And, you know, you've heard these kinds of things before, right? Our soapboxes can become the, the, the lens through which we view everything. And all of a sudden, everything is about this issue that we're so passionate about. But I wonder if the gospel became our soapbox, I wonder if this desire to please Jesus was the thing that, that colored our view of everything around us, that every high and every low, every decision, every turn was about what would Jesus want me to do to represent him well in this scenario? Might this be an open door to share the gospel? Would he again use me to share my faith in Christ and what he's done for me? What if that was our soapbox? And I'm not proposing that we, you know, go out to some street corner and get a literal soapbox and stand up on it and preach the gospel, but, but oh, that we would leverage the details of our lives to please Jesus and pray for open doors to share the gospel as a result, to order our lives around the gospel in such a way that People would see Jesus in us and, like Felix and Drusilla, would say, I want to hear you more on this matter. Tell me a little bit more about how Jesus changes the way you live or whatever it was that you said. Why in the world would you come clean about that? Nobody knew. Tell me more. Tell me more. And as we seek to live for Him, to trust that the Lord will open doors for us to explain the importance of faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul uses three categories, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So let me talk about each of those briefly. First of all, righteousness. We know that righteousness is granted by faith, and as a result, we have perfect standing before God. This frees us from fear and empowers us to do good works. Not trying to earn righteousness, but good works empowered by love. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. You see, the work of Christ on the cross tells us that we don't need to do righteous works to earn our salvation, but instead it tells us that because he gave us his righteousness, we should live for righteousness. And we have power now to do it. Let's think of self-control. This is one of the primary traits of the Christian, self-control. Before Christ, we were slaves to sin and selfishness. We had no other choice, no true self-control. We could, we could not control our flesh, but now in Christ, we've been given God's spirit. We have God's power to say no to ourselves, our flesh. This is a crucial mark for a believer. And the ability to say no to sin 
This is why the Bible prohibits sins like outbursts of wrath and so forth because they speak the very opposite of the self-control that a Christian should have. I understand some sins beset us and we enslave ourselves to sins sometimes and you may find that on your own you're having trouble demonstrating that self-control over that sin once again. I'm not trying to tell you you're not saved, but I would encourage you to do something about it. Reach out for help. Talk to another brother or sister in Christ because that self-control in your life is one of the key marks of what it means to be a Christian. And your brothers and sisters in Christ would love to help you walk the path of self-control where you say no to yourself and yes to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it. So seek help and represent Jesus in that way. Paul also talks about the judgment to come. This judgment to come actually changes everything. Many don't realize that there are two important judgments to come. Often, as people imagine the future, they imagine one big judgment where we all sort of stand in line before God, and as we get to His throne, there's this decision made. You either go to hell or you head to heaven, right? And sometimes, even in evangelism, we use that question, well, if you were to stand before God today, uh, why would you tell Him He should let you into heaven, right? And that's a fine question. It gets us thinking about what our salvation is based on. But I want to be clear, there's no such scenario where we stand before one throne and we either head to the right or to the left. There are actually two judgments. The first judgment is for those who've trusted in Christ and only those who are saved will be raised to that judgment. That judgment is before the Lord Jesus himself. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And we are not judged there to to find out whether we go to heaven or not. We're actually judged there for the way we lived. We give account for our works. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. We'll discuss that in our growth groups. And so I encourage you to think about this a little bit as you prepare for growth groups. Paul says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5 that because... He's ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for his works. He says this, I make it my aim to be well-pleasing to him. Paul was living his life in this life for that moment. He knew he was headed to heaven. That was not in question. It's the resurrection of the just to stand before Jesus. All of them that stand at that judgment are headed to heaven. But we'll give account to our Savior about our lives. And so Paul says, knowing that, I make it my aim to please him. But there's a second judgment. And again, there's, there's no point after death where there's this choice made by God. Well, I guess you'll go to heaven and I guess you'll go to hell. No, it's determined in this life. The second resurrection is for those who are not saved, who never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection of the unjust. And at that resurrection, all of those who are not saved stand before the great white throne of God And again, the determination is not a decision of whether they enter heaven or hell. The determination is their works. They're judged for their works. And so we can assume from this that even in the eternal torment of the lake of fire, there's some varying degrees of torment based on works because it's a judgment of works. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So friend, I want to speak to you urgently today because there's no time after death where you get to change your mind, where you get to decide, well, or even plead with God, well, please look at my good works and send me to heaven. No, it's an entirely different judgment seat. So don't be like Felix who puts off the decision, oh, I'll hear you another day when I feel like it. The question is real. If you were to die today, What would happen to your eternal soul? Which judgment seats would you stand before and give account for your works? If you would place your faith in Jesus Christ today, the one who died for you and rose again, who paid for your sins and offers you his righteousness by faith, if you trust in him as Savior today, 
You can have your sins washed away and receive peace with God and have confidence about the destiny of your soul for eternity. Would you trust in Him today? This judgment to come is also an impetus for us as believers because we know that as we who have trusted in Christ, we will stand before Jesus and give account for our lives. Yes, even the details. And so to represent Christ well in this life, Paul reminds us that it's not so much about the big things as it is about aiming to please Jesus in the details. I want to close by reading a verse that actually the Apostle Peter wrote that I think summarizes Acts 24 perfectly. Listen to Peter's encouragement to believers in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, and notice the similarities. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means set him apart as holy, the one that you serve in fear and please. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. May the Lord use us to represent Christ well. May he give us strength not to look for the big things, but to come back to a place where we're yielded to him in the details, aiming to please him in the small things, ready to come clean when needed so that the name of Christ would be magnified. And if the Lord would be pleased to even give us the opportunity to share the gospel with those who need to hear about Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Paul's example here. We do want to live this way, and we so desperately need your help. We thank you to have given us everything we need in Christ, cleansing of sins, righteous standing before you, and your spirit and your word so that we can be pleasing to you and when we fall short to run to you in confession and know the sweet restoration of fellowship granted by your eternal forgiveness. We thank you and praise you for these beautiful truths. Help us to live for Jesus and may his name be magnified among us. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.